Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. questions on that topic we'll go ahead and jump back into our chapter on managements and i jokingly said it's a great chapter because this is a management class um i also mentioned on uh tuesday that i've talked to people before who didn't see the merit in studying you know business management but as i mentioned everything is a business and every every business needs somebody responsible to make sure it's being done correctly and that you're leading your organization uh, properly. So um, some of the main talking points we talked about on Tuesday, just as a brief recap, is uh, there's these roles that managers play. Um, they have these four main roles that they go into, planning, uh, organizing, leading, and controlling. And within each one of those roles, there's these subcategories that managers kind of fall into. And so, those categories are planning, like I said, uh, and I'm gonna break, I guess break these down again. So planning, as you can see, there's several different types of plan. What, let's, before I go to the next slides, let's talk about each one of these. What did I say strategic plans are? Ricky's got it. It's like long-term. Long-term, right. Our strategy, what's our long-term goals? What did I say tactical plans are? Short-term, day-to-day. How about operational plans? I know everybody was listening and taking notes. You went home and listened to it again, and you kind of like just soaked it all in. You read the chapter and everything. I know you guys are doing all this stuff, so you should be able to like just go with it. Okay, yeah, operational is day-to-day, what we do, and how how, how do we get to the strategic goal? What's the daily steps? Like um, a personal example, if you want to lose weight, say, you know, I want to lose, you know, 100 pounds, whatever it is. Well, you just don't blink and that happens. There's day-to-day things you have to do, you know. You've got to control your inputs, you know. What are you eating? What type of exercise are you doing? What type of uh, liquids are you drinking? What type of sleep are you getting? I mean, there's all these different inputs that go into reaching that strategic long-term goal. And so, um, same thing's true with business, you know. I mentioned the example I said, doing the 1.2 million in sales a year breaks down to 100,000 a month and basically 25,000 a week. So what are we doing daily, you know, that, that lends to uh, that, that 25,000 a week, that lends to that 100,000 a month. And I used to be in sales, I worked for Toyota for a little while, and that's exactly how they operate. They would sit down with us and say, okay, it's October coming up, how many units we need to sell? There, there's, a, there's a base that they're required to sell to meet their monthly responsibilities, and they have an obligation to the dealership, you know, by, uh, they're required to sell a certain amount, uh, but they, they set these goals and say, okay, that's, this breaks down to each salesperson selling this many units. This breaks down to this person selling this many units per month and per week. So if you go through the first week or two, you're halfway in the month, you have another sales meeting, you can see, okay, we're at 80% of our sales goal where we should be at this time, so we're lagging by 20%. That means if we're going to make our monthly goal, we've got to step it up. And, and, and do that. And that's what sales managers or managers are there to do is assess and then adjust. And so what are contingency plans? Um, like backup plans. Right. What happens if? 
You know, the, what happens if there's this emergency thing that happens? And no matter what kind of contingency plans you've got, there's always unknowns, things that you can't factor in or you didn't think of. And those lead to uh, learning opportunities. You know, we, we, can, we didn't foresee this happening. So what kind of contingency plan did we have? Pandemic was a great example of contingencies. A lot of business, you know, shut their doors and they had to adjust. Okay, we're used to having X amount of foot traffic to come in here in order to facilitate our business. And so now that we've closed our doors, we can either say we're, we're done, we're closed, or we come up with a contingency plan. There's a great Chinese restaurant uh, in Mount Olive area I live in, and uh, it's called Yummy Orient. Anybody ever been there? You like Yummy? Yeah. Um, I like the owners, nice people, and the food is good. But they closed their door for a little bit, but then they realized, you know, I haven't talked to them about it, just observational. They realized we can't just leave our doors closed. You know, that's not a good model because we've got responsibilities. The bills don't stop coming just because the, the customers are not in here right now. So they said, we're just going to adjust. We're going to uh, build out a basic to-go option and still provide our services, but just on a to-go basis. And I think they did pretty well with the to-go menu. It wasn't as thriving as it was, uh, obviously, with the, the doors open, but that's kind of how they, they, they rolled with that. So you got to have contingency plans in place. Uh, for individuals, what's a good contingency plan for individuals? One that you hear about often in the media is, you know, you got to have a, a savings plan some, some type of reserve money in case something happens. Like that figure I, I see a lot is a thousand bucks. You gotta have a thousand dollars put up just in case, you know, a bad scenario happens. Like my wife and I, we've been, you know, we've been together almost 20 years now, somewhere in that neighborhood. I've been married for 17 ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. But we've been through times in our family where it was basically paycheck to paycheck. You know, it's like, you know, you're getting paid another three days. Okay, we're eating ramen noodles and sandwiches. Here we go, you know, excitement. But families go through these times, but we've, we're at a point now where we have saved some money and we've got a little bit of a cushion. We're not, we're not wealthy by any means. I'm, I'm teaching at Wayne. Uh, hint, hint, we need raises, everybody. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, joking aside, um, it's, it feels good knowing that if there was a hurricane next week, as an example, we've got a few hundred bucks we could pull out and go buy you know, water and food and resources and things like that. Or... If you had a flat tire or if your computer crashes and you need a replacement, these are all kinds of contingencies that could pop up and money fixes a lot of those problems in the short term. And so um, I actually teach a small section on personal finance and one of the number one, I actually had a, a banker come in from a state employee credit union to talk to one of my classes. That'd be a good thing to have to bring back, by the way. I need to, need to do that again. But uh, just having like some savings, you know, like, my daughter, she just had her birthday, both of them did, and they both got around 70 bucks. You know, that's, that's what they got for their birthday. Some, some, they got some gifts too, but that's the money they got. And I talked to my daughter last night, and she had like $71 she's showing me, 320s, 2000s, and a one. I'm like, you need to just give me that 11 bucks, and I'll put it in the safe for you. And then, you know, you'll have some money if you want something. There's a little bit of savings in there. It's like, no, Dad, I'm not doing that. It's like, no, not doing that. I'm like, come on, you know, you can do it. It's not, I'm not going to spend your money. It's just for savings. And she is a saver. She's got some savings, but she just couldn't let it go. Um, she said, if I do anything, I'll put a 20 in there, and you can save that for me. So let's do it. She said, oh, no, I can't do it yet. But, you know, I'm not going to harp on her. It's her money. She can do what she wants to. But uh, saving a little bit does go a long way. So I want to encourage you guys to save. Uh, it really does help out. 
So we talked about strategic plans. I'm not going to harp on these. We'll get to new content, but strategic is top down. You know, this is what the CEO, president, general, whoever, supervisor, leader is, is directing us to do. We're going to follow that direction. And uh, th this is basically for organizational purposes. The, the people at the top, they, they are supposedly know what's best and which direction to go. So that is our strategic plan. The next is the tactical plans. These are the day-to-day, -day, as Ryan mentioned, uh, things we do. These are, these are the things that are implemented by the mid-level managers. And so in the military example, if the general comes up with a strategy, the captains, colonels, lieutenants, majors would be figuring out how to implement that strategy. What's, what's, how can we best make that long-term strategic objective occur? And then the operational plans, these are the frontline managers and workers the people uh, that are directly in contact with customers in a business setting. And they are the ones that are doing the day-to-day -day checklist to make sure, you know, do I have the resources that I need to be successful? Am I following the procedures and making sure that we're delivering on our business expectations? And then, like, like we just talked about, contingency plans. These are what-if scenarios. And it's important to have these what-if scenarios in your mind. You know, like my dad... He, uh, he's retired, but he works part-time with a friend who owns a funeral home. And it's really interesting to talk to him about um, the, the things he does, because I, like, I could never do this. Like, he'll go with his friend to pick up a body, you know, like 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, ugh, that's just not, I, I mean, I understand these things happen. It's just not for me, you know, and, and hear him talk about it. But he's really become very conversational about death in general. He said, he was talking to me the other day about, you know, people don't plan to die. You know, you just don't, it's one of the things you don't think about, you don't want to think about, you dread, but everybody is going to die. And he said, he's already made his preparations. He's actually, uh, he's got in touch with an organization, it's a body donation program. So when he dies, he said, just call this number, and within two hours, they'll send somebody to pick me up, and then his body goes off to medical science. They, they it's like a cadaver, you know, they work on him. And then within like eight, six, eight weeks, they send back the ashes, you know, they will, they will, incinerate the body so but it's at zero cost to the family and that's one of the reasons why he wants to do it is to take the burden off the family of having to to bury him you know um because he said once you're dead you're dead it's just, he doesn't care you know and uh so that's what he wants but that's uh he said people don't have contingency plans for what if scenarios you know the reason he brought it up my, my aunt got sick recently she had to go to the hospital and she doesn't have any arrangements made you know if, if something was to happen you know it's one of the things like I said, you don't think about, but uh, people should think about worst-case scenarios because you need to know. I actually keep a journal for, uh, like an investing journal, just with information about life insurance and uh, what would happen in the event that I died so my family would know, okay, well, he's got this with work, he's got, you know, his salary will be paid and things like this for, for a length of time. And, you know, I'm a young guy, but God forbid, you know, something happened to me, like... Uh, have this catastrophic accident or something, these things do happen. So you got to have some type of contingency plan in place just in case. So um, the next thing we talked about, organizing, um, I, we're getting close to new content here, but organizing is the process of coordinating and allocating the firm's resources in order to carry out the plans. Think of an organization as a puzzle. Anybody like jigsaw puzzles? My mom really got into jigsaw puzzles over the pandemic. I, I haven't put them together really as a kid. I don't have the patience for it. Well, I mean, I don't see how she has the patience, but some people do, I guess. But she would get these 500,000-piece puzzles and put them together, and it's, it's pretty impressive to see it done. 
But that's exactly what managers do for organizations. They have all these pieces, all these resources, and they have to figure out how to best use these resources to make the thing happen, to make the picture form. And so, uh, and it can be very complex because the pieces change as you're trying to put it together. The inputs change. Uh, the access to resources change. The, the people are being turned over and getting new hires coming into the company. And so it is a complicated jigsaw puzzle that the managers have to, to deal with. Uh, we talked about these different ways that labor is arranged through divisions, departmentalization, and delegation, and the levels of management, top, middle, and first line. And there could be multiple layers of management depending on the size of your, and scope of your organization. Um, complex organizations have to have some type of management structure in order for people to know, you know, who do I report to, and what is our operational objective, and uh, it allows for better supervision. We might have talked about this before, but how many people, I think this is a mother class, how many people do you think a manager can properly supervise? What number would you say? How many people work on a busy, the busiest shift at Panera, as an example? Seven, eight, okay. One manager per, okay, per shift. So what do you think the optimal number is? Any guesses? There is not a correct answer, so it's really just an opinion and a guess. Ten. Ten, okay. What do you guys think? More or less? Fifteen. Fifteen, okay. Um, I don't, I want to ask Rebecca this, because I know you have family in the military, but and I don't expect you to know the answer. I'm just going to, you know, you may. Like a squad, do you know how many people are involved in a, like a squad or a squadron? Um, it really depends right. on the job field. Sure. Um, what would you say, that? Like, uh, like a boundary, this many to this many? Uh, you're probably looking at like 100 to 300. Okay, so a squadron, 100 to 300. And within that, how many supervisors would you say would be like a squad leader? Or, well, just a... I don't know, what's the subdivision of the squad? There's, there's got to be smaller units within that squad, right? Yeah. So how many of the smaller units, would you, how, how many people would be in the smaller units? Um, probably like 50. 50, okay. And within that 50, is there just one supervisor to the 50 or three or four? So would, would you say five to the 50, something like that? So that's about 10. 10, the people that you're responsible for as a supervisor and if you've got 10, the one at the top of that squadron is responsible for like five to 10 people, that they manage five, five people to 10 people each. Okay, so that is a pretty good indicator of how many people can be effectively managed at a time, about 10. Panera does eight, he says, you're saying maybe 10. I was gonna say like as a range, maybe eight to 20, depending on what it is, you know? And Cause like, if you think about it, if I have 20 people that I directly supervise, unless they're all gathered right here, um, I've, I can only spend two minutes an hour, three minutes an hour with each individual. If they're spread out, I mean, how do I do that? How do I manage? How do I, like, if I go talk to Renee and then I go talk to other people, Renee knows the likelihood of me seeing her again is like in an hour at the, at the, at the minimum. And so basically she could just do well for that two or three minutes I'm with her and then just kind of like, well, He's not coming back for an hour, you know, so I'm just going to read my magazine and chill a little bit. And, you know, when I know hours up, you know, I'll set my timer, think he's coming around again, then I can, I can step up the productivity again. 
And so, yeah, I think, you know, 10 is a good span of control. You, with 10, you can spend roughly, what, six minutes a person, and that's, a, that's, a, that's enough time. But depending on how they're spread out, you can really kind of get your hands around how many people. When I was in the car business, it was, you know, about 10 per supervisor. When I was at Walmart, I would have 10 to 20 people that were my designated associates at a given time, depending on the area. So, all right, so let's talk about leading. This is the new content and uh, different types of leadership. So guiding and motivating others towards achieving goals. That's what leading is. Motivation is a great topic. I love talking about motivation. I actually studied it for three years, well, more than that, but in college, just specifically motivation uh, for three years. I actually did uh, a lot of research into the field, read about, I'm pretty sure I covered every popular motivation theory out there, every, every I guess, uh, significant motivation theory out there. And what I learned was that motivation for the longest time in management science we thought people were motivated by money and by extrinsic rewards. If I give you recognition, if I give you money, you will increase your performance and give me what I want. Uh, and that's true to a certain extent. Like if I said today, all of you that work right now for a job, if I double your income, would you feel more motivated to go to work and do good work? Ricky says yes. <laughs> yes. Right. If I double your money, you feel more motivated. But what we find is motivation works like this when it comes to extrinsic rewards. So let's just do a quick scale. This is five, that's 10, this is one. So if you start out motivated right here and I say, I'm gonna double your money, you shoot up to right here real quick. Okay, I'm motivated, let's go. But what happens is this, the taper sets in. And then eventually you end up right back here. And the employer has to say, well, can I double it again? You know, yeah, double it again. Okay, we go right back here, but what's happened over time? This happens. It tapers again, and it goes, you know, eventually, if there's nothing connecting you to the job other than extrinsic rewards and money, eventually, you're just like, look, you know, I have to really evaluate, is this worth my time? If, I mean, from a monetary standpoint, it might be, but from a quality of life standpoint, you're going to feel empty and unfulfilled, right? I, when I was working at Walmart, I mean, I made more money than I made in education to start, and I actually took a $10,000 pay cut to leave Walmart to go to education. But the quad, like, my motivation was super, even with the pay drop, because I didn't have to work nights and weekends. Um, I, had, I was able to rest better. I had less stress. Uh, I had more time with family. Just quality of life was way improved. And so my motivation, uh, because I was doing something intrinsic, it wasn't a reward that somebody had to give me. It wasn't money. It was something I felt like I needed to do for me. And so that is the magic behind motivation is trying to figure out what makes you happy in life and kind of going down that path. And so, like, I've read statistics that four out of five people don't like their work or they're not happy with work. And part of that probably is that they're working in the wrong field. You know, you need to pick a career path that you really are going to be excited to get up and go to. Like, I don't mind being here at all. I like teaching. I like working for Wayne. The pay could always be better. Once again, I'm talking about pay. But... That, you know, I think that's true in any field. If I made two hundred grand a year, my lifestyle would probably be commiserate with that, and eventually I'd be saying, you know, I don't make enough money. You know, like you know, I saw an article within the past two years, a guy that owned like eight subways, complaining that he's he's broke. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, just because he spends so much money in his lifestyle that that just doesn't fulfill that, you know. But if he lived on 
half his income, he'd probably feel rich, you know. So it's really a matter of perspective. <clears throat> so leading and motivating, trying to get people motivated. A good motivator uh, for people, I find, is connecting with them as an individual by asking them, <clears throat> what, do you, what do you see yourself, you know, in the next year or two? What, what drives you? What do you want to do? Like, don't assume people just want to, you know, work with you forever. Like, people are going to leave. Like, that's just the way it is. So how can I help you get to where you're going next? That's a good question managers to ask. <clears throat> if you know, if people know that you're interested in helping them get promoted and helping them move up and move on, that, that's a good buy-in. People don't show up to, people do show up to work because they're getting paid, but people more readily show up when they know their manager, it, it affects the manager. It's like, oh, you know, I could call out today, you know, and I don't care, but if I call out, it's going to hurt Ryan because he, he cares about me, he's my friend, and I don't want to mess him up, you know. That's why people show up more often. You know, absenteeism is a real thing, but if you can uh, show that you care, people are less likely to be absent on you. So can can be anyone in the organization regardless of position. It can be the leader. <clears throat> Managers are designated leaders, sometimes use uh, coercion to achieve change. What does that mean? What does it mean to you be coercive or use coercion? Manipulation, force, like you'll do this or else. I mean, do we still have to talk to people like that? I mean, I know in some cases, like there's this, there's always going to be this small percentage of people who are the laggards, not willing to, like the bell, the bell curve. You got you know some people who are all stars. You got a few people who are terrible, and then you got everybody in the middle. And you're always going to have this group of people who are not interested in doing good work, but you shouldn't have to coerce them. It's either, look, we could be respectful. You were hired to do a job. By our observations, you're not doing that job. You need to consider, do you want to be here? If you do, we need to, we need to make some adjustments. If you don't, we can separate. That's okay. You can go find a job somewhere else if you don't want to be here. It doesn't have to be disrespectful. You can talk to people respectfully. They may not like that tone, but that's just the way business is ran. You know, you need to be respectful and don't have to use coercion. If somebody doesn't want to be there, you don't have to. You shouldn't feel like you have to make them do work or make them be there. You say, look, you know, it's the, and uh, Miss Legrand's husband owns a business. That's a fire extinguisher business. I guess her family owns it, and they have a ninety-day policy. Like within that first ninety days, either party can separate, and it's no hard feelings. You know, it's like, look, you're on probation. If at the end of nine days this is not working out, I feel like it's not a good fit, you know, you know best of luck to you. So, so top um, uses, uh, they use to set, share, and gain support for strategies. Middle and supervisor use in directing employees on a daily basis. So to be effective, it must influence others referred to as power. And there's a couple different types of power. We're going to talk about that in a second. But they are legitimate, reward, coercive, expert, and reference. <clears throat> Leaders tend to be consistent in the way they attempt to influence others. This pattern is referred to as a leadership style. <clears throat> One of the things I strive to do as a manager was be fair. You know, you may not like what I'm telling you, but I'm gonna tell you the same I tell everybody. This is what, this is how we do it. Like I said, they don't have to like it, but I'm trying to be fair and just because if I'm showing favoritism or doing something that's not fair to other people, that, that leads to even more problems. And so, Autocratic leadership is directive leaders, little input from subordinates. An autocrat is somebody that's like an authoritarian. They rule through their own directives. It's, um, 
unilateral. This is what we want to do. This is what I want to do. And you guys are going to do it. They solve problems and make decisions on their own. They don't like a lot of input. You know, I'm, you're not here to advise me. I'm here to tell you. That's an autocratic leader. Expect subordinates to implement according to specific detail instructions. Information flowed one direction, manager to subordinate. I'm not here. I mean, once again, like they said, I'm not here for your opinion. You're here to do what I, I, need, I need you to do. This style of management is effective for quick decision-making, but generally not successful in fostering employee engagement or maintaining worker satisfaction. The example, the military uses this style. Like, you've heard that expression, if I tell you to jump, you know, how, how high? Like, like, basically saying that uh, we, we know what needs to be done. We don't want to take the time to explain it to you why it needs to be done. You just need to understand it needs to be done. Uh, this is not a good leadership style for creative uh, business like settings or people that want to question uh, why is it done this way? Can we do it better? You know, people that are creative or critical thinking don't respond well to autocratic leadership styles, <clears throat> and they probably need to find an opportunity to work somewhere else. Participative the manager shares the decision making authority with group members, or at least gets them to weigh in. Encourages discussion of issues and alternatives. Uses democratic, consensual, and consultant style. Democratic, they solicit input from all members and allow members to make final decisions through voting. <clears throat> consensual, encourages discussion about issues and requires all parties to agree to a final uh, decision. And consultative, consultative, I'm sorry, confer with subordinates before making decision, but remain, retain final decision-making authority. This last one, um, I've been a part of that a lot where Leaders want your input, but at the end of the day, they're still going to make a decision, you know, however they want to. Uh, but it is, uh, there is value in getting that feedback uh, from your constituents or of employees. So laissez-faire or free reign is the French for leave it alone. Managers turn over all authority and control to subordinates. This is appropriate if you have a highly organized group of people that are really driven and they're empowered to get things done, and you can trust them to get things done. That's when laissez-faire works. It doesn't work when you've got a group of employees who have to be micromanaged and supervised. Employees are assigned a task and given free reign to figure out the best way to accomplish it. This works really well in creative environments where employees have to process and think of solutions. Managers only get involved when asked or when needed. Subordinates have unlimited freedom as long as they don't violate company policy does have drawbacks. When expectations are not clear or lack of feedback from management, perceived management has uninvolved or has different or unwilling to provide structure or expertise. And so there's a company, I probably mentioned it before, called SAS in the Triangle. <clears throat> Average salaries in the six figures. And they have a ROWE environment, which is a results-only work environment. Basically, they say when they hire you, you're hired because we know you have expertise and knowledge to do this job. Your requirement is to produce outcomes. How you get to those outcomes is up to you. Whether that means working at 10 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock in the morning, at home or here, doesn't matter to us how you get the outcomes. As long as you get the outcomes, we're not going to ask any questions. As long as it's, it has to be in the boundaries of company policy and the law. But, you know, that's the expectation. So if you work one day a week or seven days a week, all we're focused on is getting to the outcome. And so they have very much a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, gosh, it's escaped me right when I was trying to grab it. 
Uh, autonomy, that's the word I'm looking, reaching for. I don't know why I had trouble grabbing that. But yeah, they have the autonomy to make these decisions and live their life how they want to. So if their kid's sick from school, they just stay home and work that day. Or if they need to leave at noon to go do something, that's, that's fine, as long as they're getting those results. I love the, the model. It doesn't work in every business, but I really like, I like the model. Um, situational, no leadership style is effective all the time. They have to be adjusting. So effective leaders recognize employee growth. Situational leadership selects style that matches maturity and competency levels of those completing the task. Empowers employees, gives employees increased autonomy and discretion to make their own decisions, controls resources over these decisions. So when I was at Walmart again, I had associates that were highly motivated and able to self-direct, gave them all the autonomy in the world to do their job as long as they got the outcome I needed. Other associates I had to micromanage, I had to stay on top of them, make sure I had to check in with them often and make sure they're getting done what needs to be done. So empowerment is on the rise, meaning employers are more and more allowing employees to be in the driver's seat. Realization that people at all levels possess unique knowledge, skills, and abilities. And then uh, corporate culture, this, this last little thing we're gonna talk about, what is culture again? Does anybody know like, or have an idea what culture is? You hear this thing about culture in the media. What is culture? What is it? It's one of those things I feel like people kind of know what it is, but it's hard to express. Tradition? Tradition? Right. So culture, like for us, is we have a classroom culture right here. It's a collective unconscious of a group of people. What they become as a group, that's what culture is, you know. And like I was telling my dad, like my, my, the Bradshaws, date back to a small town in England. Where we, I had a guy at church approach me one day and said, hey, man, I think we might be related. I'm like, okay. So he went home. He's a big, uh, what is it, ancestry? Or what is this? Is ancestry where they have the, the family trees? He's a big ancestry guy, like really deep into it. So he went back and tagged my line, like all the way back to like the 1600s in England. And then he like came up to me a couple weeks later and showed me my family line of all the like male Bradshaws, like from England all the way to Sampson County, North Carolina, where my family's from. And um, it was just so mind blowing. And then uh, one of the Bradshaws was actually a Supreme Court, the chief Supreme Court justice in Britain in like the 1600s. But uh, so I got that, you know, that side. And then my grandmother's and my mom's side was from Scotland. So we're all in that big, you know, island area over there. I guess we're Islanders, you know, when I think about it. But in any case, I told my dad recently, I was like, you know, we don't have a lot of culture. Like, you see all these rich cultures from other places, and I'm like, you know, we don't have a lot of culture. But then I said, you know, it's actually not true. We do have a lot of culture. We have southeastern, southeastern North Carolina culture. You know, we like cooking out on the grill, going to the beach, going to the mountains, things like that. So that's, that's kind of our culture we have here. Corporate culture is a set of attitudes, values, and standards of behavior. Some of it is uh, created at the top where the company says, this is how we want you to act and think when you're you know, wearing your company hats. But other aspects of it are created by individuals that come together and they work and they have these uh, cultural dynamics, you know, these group dynamics that come into play. It all comes down to character, you know, like if you're surrounded by a bunch of honest and, and high integrity and ethical people, that's going to be the culture of that organization. But if you're surrounded by a bunch of liars and cheaters, yeah, that's going to be also the culture. 
evolves over time and is based on the accumulative, accumulative history of organization and vision of founders. Influenced by dominant leadership and organization has tremendous impact on employee morale and company success. So I hate to keep harping on Walmart, but this is the first example that pops my mind. But when Walmart first got started, Sam Walton had been making these five and dime stores. He was a franchisee for all these little corner stores, basically, you know, thinking, thinking like Mayberry Pharmacy from Andy Griffith's show. So, like, that's what he was into. He had several of those. And his goal was to go big box and have a, a larger super center concept. But even when they went big box, the culture at the time was still, we're small town. We're a small company. We're a people-driven company. We're an associate-focused company. And that couldn't be further from the truth nowadays. You know, when I started at Walmart in 2005, that was still the message they were harping on. Oh, you know, our associates are like family. We're small town. You know, we're, we're customer and associate-focused. No, you know, it's highly corporatized. It's like no, dis, no regard for the customer, no regard for the associate. They will tell you all day long that that's their focus. No, dollars, that is the focus. Like, uh, th- I mean, like, if, if, if they could push a button and still get the same output and fire half their associates, they'd do it they, they, in, a, in a heartbeat. When I, when I was at uh, the store in Clinton, when I started there, we had 330 associates. When I left, we had about 250. And the work didn't go away. The same amount of work was there. It was just more and more, they made less people do more work. So what's up? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. So the crazy thing about Walmart is they currently have two areas of self-checkout. And so they only need one employee per area. So they're not having to have to wait for Right. And so I feel like in like a few years, if not it's going to be no cashiers at all. So they're not hiring cashiers. What you got? I think in like Japan, they have stores and they have nobody. That's, that's the exact next thing I'll say. And it's somewhere in the 10 to 30 year window, you're going to walk into a store and there's going to be zero humans except for other customers. And there'll, there'll be maybe one person on site that is a tech support person, but like robots will stock the shelves and like you'll go there and buy stuff and you can actually send your cell, your driverless car to the store and a robot will bring it out and put it in your car and that car will bring it home for you. What's up? I'm thinking like Jersey, I think I've seen. There's like a gas station that, it's like a vending machine. It's like a huge yeah, vending machine. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, what you got, Ron? In Japan, there's like a, a hotel about where it's like this strange like robot dinosaur like Hotel, but it's like all robots. Yeah. So that is, I mean, it's not dystopian. It's actually the future we're quickly stepping into. And I can see Walmart has is the largest private employer in the United States. They've got like 2.2 or 2.3 million. I can see where they have, you know, just a few thousand employees. And, they, and they're highly focused. And they've got a Android army that does their bidding for them. I mean, that, that sounds like something of a sci-fi movie. But stuff that was in the sci-fi movies in the, fix, in the 60s and the 50s, is now in our hands today, right? This is the tricorder from Star Trek. It just doesn't look like it. So uh, just got to wrap your mind around the stuff that's coming. All right, guys, this wraps up our management chapter. I appreciate your time and attention. Don't forget about your homework. If you have any questions, shoot me an email. I'll try to hit you back pretty quickly on those. And I'll see you guys on Tuesday. Have a safe weekend, okay?